Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. If you have your Bibles, please open with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5 today. Let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself. You have revealed yourself in all creation. You've revealed yourself in your word, but in these last days you've revealed yourself by Jesus Christ. And thank you that we can know you. We can know your son, Jesus. And that is our true desire to to know you more. So we today desire to hear from you in you alone. And all God's people said, Amen. This morning as we begin a new book, 2 Thessalonians, I'm not going to do the typical introduction because the introduction for 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians is much the same. The only difference will be things that I add and bring in that happen between the two books, probably written about three weeks later, this book from the first book. But where I'd like to start before we even jump into 1 Thessalonians is asking the question, how do we learn to read a person? Or how can we grow sensitive to the needs of a a situation? See, these were things that Paul was confronted with. He needed the, the wisdom of God. It wasn't just enough to know God, but he needed the wisdom, the wisdom to know what to say, what to do in each and every one of these circumstances. I think the wisdom, some of the wisdom that Paul gleaned from was in the book of Proverbs, but we know the wisdom of God is Jesus Christ himself. But in the book of Proverbs, being that this is the beginning of the year, it's a great way for you and me to become wise. And we can, as we read that book, we recognize a number of ways in which a person does grow wise. And they include observation, instruction, learning from mistakes, and finally, most of all, most important, the fear of the Lord. The Bible knows only two paths, though, when we're talking about wisdom. The paths, it it describes in the Bible, it's either one that follows the way of righteousness or the other one which follows the way of wickedness in Psalm 1. See, in the New Testament, Jesus affirmed the basic description of that course of life as a a choice made between the narrow way and the broad way. The narrow way leads to life. The broad and wide leads to destruction. Again, in Matthew 7. In the book of Proverbs, those who walk that narrow path of righteousness are called the wise. They're upright. They're the righteous ones. But those who carelessly speed down that broad and wide road that leads to destruction are labeled as fools and wicked and unfaithful ones. See, there are two roads and two destinies. And we have to choose which road we're going to go. The one road leads to life. The other leads to destruction. Paul was going down that straight and narrow path. He was trusting in the Lord and leaning not on his own understanding. 
after his experience it, 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 on his way to Damascus, struck down with that bright light, he recognized the wisdom of God, the fear of God. And he chose to walk a path that was straight and narrow, that was dependent upon God. Well, let's look at our text. We begin with verse 1 in our text. The greeting. Paul, Silvanius, and Timothy to the church in Thessalonians. See, the greetings typically started with the name of the person that was writing. In this case, there's Paul, Silvanius, and Timothy. All three were together. All three were in harmony. They were the ones that loved this church. They were the ones that had served this church. And we're going to look at the character of each of these. What kind of men were they? Were they the ones that walked down that straight and narrow path or the broad and wide? When we begin with Paul, uh, his name was originally Saul of Tarsus. He was a, a Pharisee. In fact, he, even later on, he would call him a Pharisee of Pharisees. But it was on that road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, he encountered the resurrection or the resurrected Christ on that road. And Paul never got over that encounter with Christ. Much like you and me, when we've been born again, we had that personal experience with God in some way. We too should never forget it. It's that, that remembering when we were born again, what God had done for us, when we understood that, and we knew that there was only one path. It was the straight and narrow path that led to life. And Paul never forgot that. In fact, he knew that was the most important thing that ever happened to him. It's in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. Follow with me. It's on the screen. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be a loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. See, Paul's desire was just to gain Christ and know Christ more and more, to be found in Christ. Everything in this world no longer mattered. The only thing that ever mattered was Christ. See, it was from that time on, in the book of Acts, chapter 9, that conversion, life was centered around one thing, Jesus Christ. See, and that's true for those people that walk down that straight and narrow path that leads to life. One thing matters. Only one thing, and that is Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul would go on and write in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. When Paul says he had been crucified with Christ, he identified with the death of Christ and also the resurrection of Christ. He died to himself that day. He would no longer live in his flesh and the power of the flesh, but dependent upon Christ, being led by Christ. Christ was his life. 
And he recognized that Christ loved him with an everlasting love. And his mercies were new every morning. And he recognized that Christ had given himself up for him. If he were the only person in this world. But he knew much more. He knew that he was called to bring the gospel message just like you and me. That's what we do when we walk that straight and narrow path. We, our lives are centered on Christ and we bring the gospel to a lost world. Now, Paul was writing the Romans. He begins in Romans chapter 1. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul saw himself as a, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. He saw that he no longer had any rights. He gave up all of his rights in the world to live for Christ. And he knew his calling. He was called as apostle. And he was set apart for the gospel. Like that, every believer, if they've truly been born again, are bondservants. We've given up our rights when we recognize what Christ has done for us. How good he is, how loving he is, how merciful he is. And we too, like the apostle had a calling, we're being given the great commission. We go out as, in a sense, as missionaries, bringing the gospel message to those that God has put around us. And some of us, he may even send afar. Well, whenever Paul went to preach, he preached the good news of Jesus Christ. It wasn't the good news before, but the moment that he was born again, he knew the good news of Jesus Christ, what Jesus Christ had done. In Paul's message, when he preached, he taught the gospel of Christ. In the teaching of the gospel, he would reason with them from the Old Testament when speaking to Jews. Reason from them. And there were three probably main points that we see as we look at the scripture again and again when he preached. First, he preached the promised Messiah would suffer and die. And it's most likely that this was based upon passages coming from Isaiah 53. But his message was the Messiah. That he had to suffer and he had to die for the sins of the world. Well, there's a second thing that was always in Paul's messages when you look at it. Not only was the, he to suffer and die, but he had to be raised from the grave. Again, you find that in Isaiah 53. And finally, Paul would preach, Jesus of Nazareth was the predicted Messiah. You know, those truths are the same truths for you and me. And a, a great book to read would be Isaiah 53, a, a great chapter, understanding what that's all about. And you'll see how it lines up with the New Testament. Paul was a man that took that straight and narrow path. It centered upon Christ. He never forgot his calling and what Jesus did for him. Well, the second person I want to call your attention to that walks down that straight and narrow path is a man named Silvanius. Look with me at Acts 15, verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among you to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas and Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. Now Silas here is the same man of 
Esselvanius. To Silas, the church, though, was much more than a, a religious gathering, a decoration, a, a place for, for meeting people. To him, it was the body of Christ. To him, he saw people serving, serving in the real church, and he served with all of his heart and mind and soul and strength because he desired to be in the presence of God. He desired. You hear those words, good words, good and faithful servant. Well, look with me in Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living, holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. See, this is again how Silas lived his life as well. Walking, talking, ministering with Paul, he learned the importance and walked also down that straight and narrow path, which meant that his life was a living sacrifice. It was his service of worship. Well, what makes um, his leadership in the church a great testimony is the fact that his spiritual character, you know, that was in Jerusalem, where he was targeted for much persecution. See, he was willing to lay down his life if, if necessary. He was, again, as we looked in Acts, he was one of the leading brethren, leading men. And he was a target, a target for spiritual warfare, a target, again, for uh, those that would persecute the church. He stood firm, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, walking down that straight and narrow path that leads to life. Well, the third person I want to call your attention to in that introduction is Timothy. His name means venerating God. A convert, a friend of Paul. Timothy was a resident of Lystra, the city, the province of Galatia. He was the son of a Greek father and his, his mother was Jewish. Her name was Eunice. It's very important to understand that, that Paul would speak about, I have no one like him. He had this kindred spirit with Paul. He too was willing to lay down his life. He too served side by side with Paul. He could be entrusted by Paul to minister and carry on just as Paul did. Another brother that walked down that straight and narrow path that leads to life. He stood out among the crowd. Paul did, Silas did, Timothy. They were example that there was a God and he was a true God. Men that are serving, women that are serving, men and women that are believers. We walk down that straight and narrow path that leads to life. Now notice also in verse 1, notice who the letter is written to is to the Thessalonians. Paul himself found, founded the church in Thessalonica on a second missionary journey. He was only in the city a short time because he was forced out by the enemies of the gospel. Yet they had become a strong and flourishing church by the grace of God. See, Paul stood firm in the gospel. He had a message to bring and nothing was going to stop him from bringing. He brought it to the, to the people there. A church was established and 
when he was run out, he would go and spread the gospel again. And those that were left, they had their eyes focused upon that author and the finisher of the faith. They were amazed what Jesus had done for them. And what did they do? They stood strong. The church was flourishing. Flourishing how? By the grace of God. Now, it's been suggested that this church was probably composed of more Gentiles rather than Jews. And it was because of the tone of the two letters. There were very few quotations or even allusions from the Old Testament. And the phrase, how you turned to God from idols, probably first referred to the Gentiles. Here was a church that chose to walk the straight and narrow path. They would be strong and they would be flourishing in the face of persecution. In fact, as we go through this book, this is what we're going to see. Well, notice that the church is, again in verse 1, it's in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is in. We are in God. And God is in us. Well, verse 2, notice what it says. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Paul brought this customary greeting to the Thessalonian Christians, hailing them in the grace and peace of God the Father. Now, what's interesting about this book is here, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in are put on equal terms. Notice God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And what makes it amazing is it's so early, probably one of the first books written in the New Testament. They were standing, Paul was standing on the truth of who God is and what he had done. Now, we don't often think about it, but suffering helps us grow. Think for a moment. Probably the greatest growth in your life or the time that you backslid the most would be a time of suffering. But when a person stays focused upon Jesus Christ, it's on that straight and narrow path, it's during that time of suffering, he grows. Grows in maturity. Some people grow leaps and bounds while others just are continuing to trust God more and more and realizing he's bigger and greater and more loving and more wonderful than they could ever, ever imagine. Now, notice again in verse 3, we learn something about our text. It's their faith was growing. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged facing this persecution they were growing they were maturing and that word's interesting there in the beginning of verse three ought it means kind of speak of a debt something that was owed it suggested being bound and obligated to perform a a duty and since the word ought is in that present tense paul was saying that It was under a continuous obligation. And the heartbeat of this true servant is one who rejoices in righteousness, in truth, in the moving of the Spirit of God. 
and he is excited. He's thanking God. God, you're amazing. You're giving them the strength and they're growing in the face of this persecution and they're standing firm. Now, it's important to understand that that trials and suffering are necessary. Why? Because a faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. I remember in my own life, uh, after becoming a believer in, in a trial and a test, and it was there as I went through that, God kept me through that, I realized that my faith was real. And God was everything the word of God said. And if a person's going to walk down that straight and narrow path, those are the things that he needs to know. God is real. He's bigger and greater. He can be trusted. And we can trust in him and lean not on our own understanding. And it comes in those trials, in those sufferings. They realize that God will never leave us or forsake us. So new believers must expect that their faith at some point is going to be tried because this is the way that God proves whether or not their decision is genuine. See, God's going to allow them to see, did they truly make this decision for him? Well, faith is is like a muscle. It must be exercised in order to grow stronger. And the tribulation and the persecution are, are God's way to strengthen our faith. Now, that easy life, and all of us kind of like the easy, comfortable life. We don't like conflict. We don't like things to go against us. But that easy life often leads to a person with a a shallow faith. When they a person goes through and they never have anything wrong, and then when something goes wrong in their life, they don't know how to act. They they run to the world. They run to everyone else to, to pray for them instead of turning to God. Read the Psalms, my goodness, and in all you can hear what David went through, the cries of him, and yet in the end he praises God for his faithfulness. Or look at Hebrews chapter 11, the the great uh, men and women of faith where their faith was tested and they suffered in one way or another. They faced tremendous obstacles so that their faith could grow and they would do it again. Sometimes, though, suffering can make us selfish. Oh, it begins with a decision in your own life. Will you turn in or will you turn out? Or will you turn to Jesus Christ? But when suffering is mixed with the grace of God and faith, it produces something sweet. Love, the fruit of the Spirit. Notice the order first, faith, and then love. Faith puts us in contact with the the eternal spring of love in, in God himself. And the necessary consequences that our hearts are drawn out in love to all that belong to him. Look back at verse three, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. See, their love was abounding. And I'm going to say abounding more and more. 
as you are filled with the love of God and you pour that love, God keeps filling you up, lavishing you with it. And there's more to give. And you know that joy of giving away love, how it ministers, how it comforts, how it builds up the body of Christ. This is what was happening to those in Thessalonica. Not only was their faith growing, but but also in their, their love, the love for those believers around it, but the love for the lost. I think of Jesus on the on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. That is love. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Father, send someone into their life to share the good news. Father, open up their hearts that may see you in all of your glory in your Son, Jesus Christ. See, love is what Christianity really is all about. It's love that fills the hearts. It's love that the world needs to know, the love of God. And love fulfills the law. Well, there was plenty of love to go around. There's love for God. There's love for each other, love for the lost. There's love for church leaders and love for those who are at meetings and love for those who weren't at the meetings and love for old people and love for young people and love for those who gave generously and love for those who were in misery and love for those who stood out boldly for the truth and love for those who are going astray and love for those with charisma and charm and love for those who had no personality at all and love for those who were kind to them and love for those who were cruel to them. No wonder Paul felt bound to give thanks. This church was marked and stamped with the love of God. It's the mark of a Christian. A mark that says, this one is like Christ. Galatians 5, 6 says this. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision mean anything, but faith working through love. See, love is that motivation and our faith works. We exercise it. We go in the world. We share the gospel. We provide for those in need. We step into areas that you could never imagine you would step before. And we experience not only the love of God ourselves, but the joy of being used by Jesus Christ himself. See, when a Christian suffers, their faith reaches upward toward God, crying out to God, trusting in God, knowing there's no place else to turn, and their love reaches outward. Outward, first with the fellow believers, but outward to those that do not even know him. The very reason that Jesus come to the world, to die for sinners. Look with me in verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God, for the perseverance and the faith in the midst of all your persecution and afflictions which you endure. See, they were steadfast in their faith. When in Second Thessalonians was written, persecution and affliction were 
still a great part of the reader's continuing experience. And I'm talking about the present tense. You are enduring. They were going through it. It was ongoing as if it's not going to let up. The Thessalonians' endurance rose out of the refusal to renounce the Christian faith. They stood firm in the truth that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, God in the flesh. In spite of all the local opposition, in spite of the persecution, the mocking, they joyfully, lovingly stood there exalting the name of Jesus Christ. Now, the Thessalonians faithfully endured all the intenseness of this because their hope in the future would be revealed in what we call the rapture of the church. They were looking for the Lord's coming. And, and that's, that's so good. Whether it be the rapture or a person close their eyes now, fall asleep in Jesus, we know that we're going to be with Jesus. But as Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, notice what it says in in chapter uh, 1, verse 7. And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. All through the book of 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, they're looking for the coming of the Lord, the rapture of the church. We talked about the, the day of the Lord in, in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. And as we get to chapter 2, we're going to see that day of the Lord where they thought they missed that rapture because the things that were being said. Well, it's interesting. During World War II, when the enemy's armies invaded North Africa, the missionaries had to flee. And there was great concern over the churches left behind. But when the war ended, the missionaries returned. They discovered a strong and thriving churches. The sufferings of the war purified that church, helped that strength, strengthened the faith of those true believers reaching out to God. One of the best weapons for fighting Satan is praise. In fact, it was Job. In, in spite of all of his pain, Job was able to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. So the next time things go wrong, you're tempted to get impatient. Turn to God and give thanks. See, it's, it's, again, it's, it's fixing our eyes upon the author and finisher of faith. That's what those that go down that straight and narrow path do. That's the wise ones. They know that God is able to keep them. God's able to bring them home. They know that God one time is going to judge this world. But they know they have a calling, a purpose in this life. We see the example again and again, and we see it with Paul and Silas when they were praying and singing hymns. They're in jail. They're prisoners. And the prisoners around them are are, are listening, and they're praising at midnight. Midnight, whipped, beaten, flushed, tore on their back, yet they're praising God. They knew that they were identifying with Jesus Christ. They knew that one day all of this would be taken away. They knew that this was just momentary afflictions. Now, when we think of the, the, the church, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, wrote a Latin church father, Tertullian. And history has proved this true again and again. 
There was a devoted Chinese Christian said the suffering in China has multiplied the blessings because it purified the church. See, that person that's going down that straight and narrow path knows God, knows the wisdom of God, knows that there is no other path, but it's this path that's straight and narrow that leads to Christ. And they know when they stay on that path, there is great peace, there is great rewards, and there is great success, no matter how dark it seems. See, their spiritual progress caused Paul and his associates to boast about the other churches. They they couldn't help but talk about what God was doing in them and how God was working through them and how they were steadfast and full of faith in spite of all they were going through. And the people, when they heard it, just praised God. Again, look with me in verse 5. This was the plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. Notice, they these were kingdom people. They were suffering for the sake of the kingdom. They were steadfast in the faith. They were Their faith was built upon the rock, and that rock is Jesus Christ. And they knew one day, God will judge them. There's a, there's a judgment for them. It, it is a reward. But they also knew that God will judge this world. And they knew it was very important that they stood firm, that they needed to be a light. They needed to be a witness. In fact, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 and 8, notice what it says. Only conduct yourselves in a matter worthy of the gospel. So that whether I come and see you and remain absent, I'll hear of you standing firm in one spirit, one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but salvation for you, that too from God. See, when a person stands firm in his faith, trusting in Jesus Christ, that rock, again, it's a a confirmation. It's a sign that they are saved, that their faith is real, and God would keep them. But those are persecuting, those that will go against. It is a sign of destruction because God will judge this world one day. Their suffering was the evidence Their very proof, the genuineness of their faith, and yet the justice of God as well. Because it was the first part, again, that he guaranteed that they would see his glory would come soon. But on the other hand, although God was allowing the the persecutors some rope, it's evident that in the Thessalonians, he was working a special work in their life. He was on their side. He was holding them up. He was sustaining them. He was sanctifying them. And he was using these persecutions as a means to develop that faith, the love, and and perseverance. In contrast to all the prejudice, anger, and bitterness of the persecutors. So he was preparing them for the eternal kingdom. But also judgment for the one that chooses to walk down that broad and wide road that leads to life. 
Those in Thessalonica were suffering for their faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead. And he, Jesus, the Word became flesh and dwelt among them. It's suffering for Christ, identifying with Christ, his death, his resurrection, that he is God. He's the one that spoke into existence this world. He is the one that will judge in the end. Every place that Paul went, there were people suffering for this or that, but it's only the suffering in and for Christ, the Christ of the Bible, that leads one along that kingdom path, that straight and narrow path, leads us to Christ Jesus, the very wisdom of God. It's there that we understand why a person goes through suffering. John 15, 20 and 21 says this, Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. And if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they had kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent them. You know, eternal life is knowing God. Now, the demons know God, but know them with our heart, that we surrender our heart and mind. And it's not enough just to know them with the mind, but your will must know them, and it's submitting, giving yourself over to Jesus Christ. The world will persecute you. The world will come against you. But if we are steadfast, firm in our faith, we're the evidence we're walking down that straight and narrow path that leads to life. Look at verse 5. This is a plain indication that God's righteous judgments so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. See, they were willing to lay down their life first for Jesus Christ and for the kingdom of God. Do you remember in, again in the book of Matthew, seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and he'll add all things. The person that goes down that straight and narrow path is the one that's seeking first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, knowing that God's going to add whatever those needs are. Now, it's interesting, though, when we, we talk about uh, suffering and people read, especially in Matthew twenty four thirteen, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And people use this as a work salvation that all are going to go through this heavy tribulation. We will go through tribulation. We will go per persecution. But this passage here is in the context of, of Jewishness. And if you go back and read the whole text, it's dealing with Israel. And the one that endures to the end will be saved. It means that he will be saved and he will go into the millennial kingdom. The promises that must be fulfilled to Israel or if they're not, it makes God a liar. And God is not a liar. So it doesn't refer to the church here. It refers to Israel. Well, 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, the reason I pull this up is is salvation is based upon faith or by grace we are saved by faith not of works lest any man boast 
See, Second Corinthians is telling us this, a, a godly sorrow produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. There is no salvation apart from repentance. It's not on what we do, but this godly sorrow leads us to a place that we're willing to lay down our life for him. Mark 10, 15 says this, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. So we need to come as little children, open, teachable, believing Jesus at his very words. Well, to pull this all together, when faced with crushing troubles, we can have faith. The faith that God is using in our trials for our good and for our glory to glorify him and know that our faith is real. Knowing that God is fair and just and will give us the the patience in our suffering because we know that he's not forgotten us. And God's timing, when you stop and think, is always perfect. He will relieve our suffering and punish those who will persecute us. The question really becomes for me and for you is, will we trust God's timing? Our first instinct is, stop it now, take it away. The early Christians pray, Lord, give us the strength to endure because they wanted to identify what Jesus Christ has done for them. See, that's the first step toward growing endurance is just trusting God on his timing, trusting God what he's doing in that situation, knowing that God is in control. How does that happen? It's getting on that straight and narrow path that leads to life. Knowing that Jesus is with us, he'll keep us, He'll help us through the storm no matter what is going on. It's being focused upon Christ. That he is our life. And it means that that person's on that straight and narrow path will want to talk about God, want to praise God, want to be right in the middle of his will. It means being like a little child. In fact, a pastor friend of mine shared this with me. He writes, So my granddaughter engaged me with a theological question. I have a very important question. And he said, what's the, what's the question? Will I need sunglasses when I get to heaven? Why do you ask that? Well, when I'm in the presence of the glory of Jesus, I think I might need sunglasses. And he he says, yeah, uh, and right. You might be on to something, Sandy. She was thinking what it's going to be like to meet Jesus face to face. See, that one is walking that straight and narrow path. Can't help but think what it's like to meet the King of Kings. The one who laid down his life for you and me. How much faith does it need 
to be saved, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ like a mustard seed, like a child. How much theology do you need to know? You just need to know Jesus. And Jesus will open up your heart. He will give you everything you need for life and godliness. You have to choose today and each day which path will you go down the straight and narrow that leads to life or leads to Jesus or the broad and wide that leads to destruction where you really never ever think about Jesus Christ. You're just driven by your flesh. Father, thank you for your word, the hope that we have. Thank you for this illustration of this this young girl thinking, pondering upon you. I know for myself and I know for others that I've talked to, it's, it's that pondering upon you, the marveling at you, remembering what you have done for each of us. It's what keeps us focused, keeps us on that straight and narrow path longing for the day that you're coming for us. Make us faithful men and women today. In Jesus' name, amen.